You can go ahead and have a seat. Man, thank you for being here this morning. Cold, a little bit of snow. Um, to remind you, this is the last uh, Sunday gathering we have of this calendar year. And so we're not going to meet next Sunday on Christmas. We're not going to meet January 1st, uh, but we will be back in here January 8th. Uh, we'll, we'll push that as much as we can to get that information out to, to you throughout the next couple of weeks just by way of reminder, but just know uh, that's what's coming. Uh, the Christmas season for me and my family has been, uh, I think, more fun this year than any other year. Part of that is uh, our two kids are getting a little bit older. This is the first Christmas uh, where Brooks, who's about to be three in January, I feel like he's actually recognizing things that are happening. Like he sees Christmas lights and that leads to some excitement. There are now some presents under the tree, specifically um, some dino wrapping paper presents uh, that's leading to a lot of excitement, but a lot of like, don't touch that. Uh, and then our almost one-year-old just start ripping stuff off the tree. Uh, and so again, it's like, hey, don't touch that. But we also have a tree in the living room. So it's like, that feels fair game to a kid to just go and, and make a mess. But uh, it's been super fun. I hope the holiday season for you is great over the coming weeks. I, I hope uh, the life stage of our church is not always one where we don't have holiday services or services throughout 52 weeks. I hope we get to the life stage where we don't do that. But I think where we're at as a church, as old as we are as a church, I think it makes sense for us uh, to take a step back here in the holidays and, and then get back after it in January. So by way of reminder, uh, that's what's coming. I was in a conversation uh, a couple weeks ago. In fact, I, I actually posed this question that was initially turned around on me, which is like, if you could go to dinner with three people alive uh, or dead, like you can just generate whatever dinner you wanted to have, who would be part of that? The question was then posed to me, uh, and there's, if you've been around me, I, I mentioned a name that wouldn't surprise you because uh, in the last year, I've become really fascinated and inspired by one particular guy in his story, and his name's David Goggins. I think I've actually mentioned him uh, up here before, but uh, he's a guy who grew up in Buffalo, New York. Uh, his family, he had a dad who was uh, physically and emotionally, verbally abusive to him, his brother, and his mom. He grew up in poverty, uh, super tough. Like every, every hurdle you could put in front of a young kid was put in front of him. Uh, and yet, uh, by the time he was 24, uh, he would describe himself as, as probably the most undisciplined, lazy, just smashing fast food, um, nothing really going for him. He was an exterminator uh, on the third shift. So through the night in Buffalo, uh, he would go into these buildings that were just destroyed with cockroaches. He'd have a tank and a gas mask, and he'd go in there every single night and just spray for, for all of these insects and critters. That's what his job was. And when he was 24, uh, he said he was six foot one, about 300 pounds. And, and I can understand some of this. If you work third shift, uh, you know, the local place with the avocado toast is just not open when you're going to work or getting off of work. And so he's eating a ton of fast food, putting on a lot of weight, would describe himself as just sloppy. And yet, when he was 24, he decided, you know what, I'm done with this. I want to do something different. So in a moment, he decided he wanted to become a Navy SEAL, which is ironic for somebody who would classify themselves as in massively undisciplined, but because to be a Navy SEAL, uh, like that pathway is maybe uh, one where you need to be most mentally strong of any career path possible, potentially. And yet he decided he wanted to do that. So he reached out to a, uh, a SEAL recruiter. And what the recruiter told him is you have 
a three-month window to make this happen. You want to be a Navy SEAL, you've got a three-month window. He was weighing about 300 pounds, and the recruiter said, you need to, to qualify even to, to try to be a Navy SEAL, you have to be 191 pounds, and you've got three months. The recruiter like basically told him like he's going to turn around and just go about a life, go a different direction. And yet David Goggins goes home and it's like, okay, I've got to lose 100 pounds in three months. So this is his schedule. He would wake up at 4 a.m. He would eat a banana, one banana. He would ride a stationary bike for an hour. Then he would swim for two hours. And then he would do this high intensity lifting for three hours then he would do this like study because to become a Navy SEAL, it's not just physical, although it, it is largely physical. There's like mental aptitude tests. He's got to pass all these tests. And so he's studying a lot too. Uh, he would eat nothing but a banana and drink water until dinner. And then he would have this like super portioned out meal over dinner. He lost a little more than a pound a day for three months, and when that three months came up, he weighed under 191 pounds. Now today, he's 47 years old, so that started when he was 24. So for 23 years, he's been living this kind of lifestyle, largely considered, not just in the military world, largely considered the most disciplined and hardened man that is alive today in so many different camps. The most disciplined guy. In fact, here, here's uh, some of his accomplishments today. He went through Hell Week for the Navy SEAL three times. Uh, there's reasons he went through it three times, but probably the hardest five days you could ever put yourself in, he's done it three times. He's the only person, at least last year when his book was written, the only person to qualify for special forces in three different military branches. So he's just trying to test himself mentally, becomes special forces here, then starts the pathway, becomes special forces here. O only one to do that. Uh, he eventually broke the world record of pull-ups done in a 24-hour period, which is 4,030, to which he actually did in 17 hours. Uh, he's to date run 60 ultra marathons, the shortest being a 50K, the longest being 238 miles. Uh, there, there's a legendary story of him running a hundred mile race with two broken feet and a broken shin. Uh, and what he would do is he actually took duct tape, wrapped from like his knee to his toes as tight as he could possibly make it. Uh, he said that the most painful uh, experience he's ever had was from when he wrapped his legs until they became numb. But he felt like I'm, I'm not gonna make it on broken feet and broken shins you know, a hundred miles. And so he just did this, like a doctor would not suggest this, by the way. I'm not a doctor and I know that much. Uh, very significant damage, but they would eventually go numb so he could continue. This dude is an absolute machine and, and his story and who he became has always been fascinating to me and, and pretty inspiring. And there's something about all of this that has really stood out among the rest. In fact, all those details, I had to look back in to make sure that I got them correct. But, but he talked about one thing that I, I didn't have to look back in because it always stuck with me. How he talked about motivation really rattled me because his opinion on motivation is that it's weak, it's flimsy, and it can't be relied upon. Like motivation comes and it goes. 
If you're relying on motivation for good things, you're gonna wake up and not do good things. If you're relying on motivation to get up and do hard things, you're not gonna do that very consistently. I think many of us at this time of year think ahead to 2023 and we think, hey, there's some things that were true of this year. I want them to be different. And if we're gonna rely solely on motivation, we're gonna wake up at times in 2023 and not get the job done because motivation is gonna be low or not there at all. He would talk about motivation in a really low way and he would contrast that by saying what he wants and what he wants for other people is for them to be driven, not motivated. He wants them to be driven, to actually find joy in the process, to find joy in outcomes because he thinks if you can be driven, then when motivation is high or when it's low, you're gonna show up and do the things that you're supposed to be doing. This has now categorized his life for 23 years, and so he's on podcasts, he's a New York Times best-selling author, he's on TV shows talking about who he is and how he became that, and he's saying motivation, it's flimsy, it comes and it goes. Now, we've been in a series on the Lord's Prayer for several weeks now, we're gonna wrap all of that up here this morning. I have traditionally in this series told you that if you have a Bible, this is a good time to grab it and turn to Matthew 6, Um, You could turn to Matthew 6, and then when you get there, turn to James chapter 5, because that's how we're going to actually wrap up this series. James chapter 5, if you're new to the Bible, uh, as we all once were, you can find James towards the back. It would actually be quicker to start in the back and work your way to the left, uh, but James 5 is the best place for you to go. Now, I want to catch us up a little bit. Uh, One last time, Let, let me catch us up with where we've been before we actually get to where we're going here Uh, to close things down. Week one of this series, uh, we just talked about some hurdles that we might have to prayer. I just wanna have a really honest conversation to say that whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether you think prayer is effective or you even think you're praying to anybody at all, all of us enter into a conversation on prayer with thoughts and feelings and experiences and sometimes baggage. Week one, all we wanted to do is what Jesus did in Matthew 6, which is to say, let's be really honest about where we're at. Let's be really honest about some hurdles that we may have, because I think if Jesus actually starts talking about prayer and pressing on some things, it's going to be most helpful for us to know where we're at, not where we want to project ourselves to be, not where we want other people to think we are, just simply where are we? What do we think of prayer? If we're honest, what are the thoughts and the feelings and the baggage we bring to the conversation? That was week one. Week two, we actually entered into the Lord's Prayer. Here's verse nine to remind you. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus starts off this master class on prayer concerned with our view of the who of prayer. And what has always struck me is Jesus could talk about who we're praying to in an infinite number of ways. He could talk about his power, his all-knowing nature. He could talk about very impressive things about the God we're praying to. And yet, in the moment of prayer, what he wants to draw our attention to is the father-child relationship that comes with prayer. Like employees make appointments, kids come storming into the room. Outsiders have to schedule dinners, kids just show up to the table. This is what Jesus is saying. The who of prayer is father-child relationship. You can go storming into that room at any time and ask for what may seem wild because you have that relationship as a child. In week three, we moved into verse 10. It says this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. Jesus moves from the who of prayer into the what of prayer. What are the types of things that populate a healthy prayer life? Now, one of the things that we noted, and, and I, I'll continue to do that because I think it's, uh, it's pretty gracious of Jesus to not throughout the Lord's prayer yell and scream about the prayer life we should have and don't have. Instead, just saying, hey, this is where you're at, and it's an invitation into a healthier prayer life, into a better prayer life, a more passionate, a more effective prayer life. And so even here in the start, he's saying, man, you may not even come to prayer with the right desires, but this is a safe place to even pray for the right desires. Like, I don't, I don't even want the right things. Jesus is saying, and then just come and ask for the right things. Ask for a desire for the right things. And then four, week four, give us today our daily bread. This is a prayer of recognition that God is supreme provider of everything we have and everything we need. I think for a lot of us, God has been answering the provider prayer long before we ever actually started praying that prayer. And so for a lot of us in our current context, I think a thankfulness that comes with God as provider is, is maybe the pathway for us to look at what he has provided and to be thankful for it. And week five, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus is creating this unmistakable link between the forgiveness we pass out and the forgiveness we think we have received. He's convinced that the freedom that comes with forgiveness can really be passed out in freedom when you feel like what you've received is a level of forgiveness that's undeserving. So Jesus tries to stack up our understanding of debt, not only horizontal with each other, but primarily debt created between us and God. And he says, you have been forgiven much. So now from that standpoint, you can be somebody who passes out forgiveness. And then last week, week six, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's likely that many of us in our fight for uh, freedom of temptation and freedom of sin, likely we have waged that war with nothing more than our willpower. And a lot of times when you're just fighting that baby with the willpower, you're not gonna be all that successful. And so Jesus lays on the table a weapon, which is prayer. Like pray when you're tempted for strength. Pray even when you think you might be tempted for strength. Jesus laying on the table a weapon. This idea between struggling with and surrendering to. Many of us don't, don't struggle with temptation. We actually surrender to it. And so the part of the struggle is just entering into prayer. I wanna fight. I wanna engage the battle, pick up a weapon and engage it. And this week, we're gonna wrap up a, what feels like a long conversation. That felt like a, a long wrap up. That's where we've been. Many of us come in here, I think maybe even desiring, like I maybe want something new in 2023. And I'm hoping prayer is one of the things that we can move towards. Now, all of this becomes worthless. All of this becomes worthless if we actually don't spend any time praying. Many of us might even feel a level of motivation, and I just want to honestly say, uh, if you're anything like me, I feel motivation to be a more prayerful person, and I want to say that's going to come and it's going to go. If your desire is to be somebody of prayer and you're just hoping that every day of 2023, you wake up with this motivation to be committed to it. I'm just gonna say, this is not gonna be there a lot of days. So what I wanna do this morning is try and expose a little bit that I think can make us driven towards prayer, not just motivated towards it. 
Something in James 5, where I think his goal is to expose us and bring weight to something that can make us driven towards it and moved by it. That when motivation's there or when it's not, I'm actually moved to be a prayerful person because I see the journey and I value it and I see outcomes and I value it. Driven towards prayer. This is the hope of this morning. And so James 5, uh, if you want to follow along, that's where I'm gonna start reading in verse 13. Here's what it says. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call on the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. And and here's a very powerful statement. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This is James writing to a group of followers of Jesus. This is the brother of Jesus who at this point in his life is convinced that prayer actually is powerful and it is effective. Prayer changes things. Outcomes are altered. And the strategy by all of that is just prayer. It wouldn't make sense to James at this point in his life to see prayer as a ritual or a formula to recite or even prayer by way of impressing God or communicating how much we love God by praying or becoming impressive and projecting ourselves to other people. That wouldn't make any sense. What he's saying is prayer is powerful and it's effective. And yet, His argument continues in verse 17. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Here's what he's ultimately saying. He's saying just straight up, to be a prayerful person means you're accessing a supernatural power to adjust and alter outcomes. Prayer is the supernatural trigger to access the power of God. And and he goes further to say, not only is it powerful and effective, not only does it change things, but he says, take for example, Elijah, who was just a human being like you. And he prayed big things and God did big things simply because a human being asked him to. Now, what I want to do is something, to be honest, I I don't love doing this, but I want to trace out something in a different part of your Bible. Let me be real honest with you. I try to, as much as I can, uh, not have us on Sunday mornings flip around to a bunch of different places, not because I don't think a bunch of different places are valuable. The reason I don't love doing it is because I never want to communicate to a group that that what like the Bible says in one place is not really sufficient enough for you to understand what's going on and lead to some type of value in your life. I'm sensitive that you don't think like, man, to, to be moved and changed and understand what's going on in the Bible, I need all these cross references and I need to know all kinds of things going on. I don't want to communicate that. But at times, I'll bring us to other places in the Bible because I think it's going to actually add weight to the argument being given. There's going to be no new information than what James is trying to communicate here. That prayer is powerful and effective. But he mentions Elijah. He gives a story and says, man, take him for example, just a human being. I want to trace what's going on, why he mentioned Elijah and what's going on in the story. So 
Uh, if you have your Bible out, 1 Kings 18 is the best place for you to turn now. That's going to be quite a bit to the left. If you have an app, that might be even easier for you because you can just scroll around and click 1 Kings 18. Now, Elijah prays. This is what James is talking about. Elijah prays and asks God not to allow dew or rain on a piece of land for three and a half years, and God says yes to that. So God supernaturally changes weather patterns simply because regular average guy Elijah asks him to. Now, there's going to be a lot going on in this story. You might have some questions, and I would say valid. Valid for some follow-up questions to be asked. But I don't want us to get lost in the details of what James is ultimately trying to point to. What James is saying is that Elijah is just a normal human being. And he asked significant things of God to which God said yes. I want to take you here. At this point, I'm going to start reading in verse 41. At this point, there's been three and a half years where there's been no water, no dew, no rain on the land. This is where we pick up. Verse 41, it says this. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Again, you might ask some questions like, what's happening here? Let me just keep reading. Verse 43, go and look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There, there's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hit your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now again, lots of stuff going on here, but James is trying to draw a connection here, it really bold and loud and double underlined to say, Elijah was a normal, average human being who asked God to do significant things, and God said yes. So when James says prayer is powerful and effective, he's pointing to somebody like us, not unlike us, to say, you want to be driven towards prayer, believe that the outcome is actually worth it. Like take Elijah, for example. He prayed that there would be no rain. God would adjust weather cycles for three and a half years, and he said yes to it. And then he prayed that rain would come, and God said yes to that. What's fascinating to me about all of this is this, in my opinion, is not even the most powerful story about prayer in this particular chapter of 1 Kings. I feel like James could have pointed the finger at a lot of powerful prayer moments in the Bible, and yet he points to this one. Prayer is supernaturally powerful. It's supernaturally effective for anybody and everybody. And you don't even have to be supernaturally impressive. You just have to be a human being. Yet the strategy of Elijah to access the supernatural power of God is just prayer. It's just prayer. Because we're here, I want to show you something else. Because you don't even have to turn there. If you're there in 1 Kings 18, I want to show you something else that's going on here with Elijah in prayer that James doesn't even point to. I'm going to start reading in verse 22, if you're already there. This story's wild. Here's what it says. 
Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, let me, let me try and set the scene here. Elijah's saying where he is geographically, he is the only follower of the Christian God. He's the only one who believes in the Christian God. Yet around him are highly religious people. They just worship a different God. And there's a lot of them. This is our setting. This is our scene. Verse 23, some more weird stuff's gonna go on. Here's what it says. It says, get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set it on fire. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set it fire to it. Verse 24, then you call on the name of the Lord, your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So here's our situation. What is not unique to this point in history, but it's kind of the, the story of history, is that different religious beliefs often bring a lot of tension and sometimes a lot of violence. What's going on in this particular time period is there's a lot of religious beliefs that feel like they clash into each other, and so a competition is raised to solve the problem. A little God competition What's normal in this time period is sacrifices would be made, this religious ritual where rocks would be stacked up, then they would put wood on these rocks and ultimately an animal on there and they would try and burn the whole thing. This was a regular practice, regardless of if you believed in the Christian God or not. This was religious practice. And so a competition is put on the table to say, let's see whose God is real, whose God is worthy of worship. Let's do this little competition and see which God shows up. Elijah stands alone, the prophets of another God named Baal, 450 of them, they all say that this is a worthy competition because whatever altar gets set on fire by the God, that, that's the real one and we're all gonna worship that God. This is the competition, they all agree to it. Look at verse 32. With the stones... Elijah built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of sea, just this, this big trench. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. So Elijah, he gets four huge jars of water and he just dumps it all over the altar. Now this is gonna be a fire competition. I'm not an outdoorsman. What I do know about fires is that wet wood is not the move. And yet what Elijah's doing is he's trying to soak the, the, the offering, he's trying to soak the wood, he's trying to soak the stones. He even digs a trench to say, we're not gonna be dry on water here. What he's trying to set up is for everybody to see what's about to happen cannot be explained except through supernatural ways. What he wants to say is there is no reasonable and rational explanation than the supernatural with what you're about to see. I'm gonna make it so wet on this altar that it's not gonna be possible to light this wood. It's certainly not gonna be possible for this fire to be sustained. This is how he sets it up in verse 36. This is his strategy. At the time of the sacrifice, the 
The prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. This is his strategy. Access the supernatural power of God. Step forward and pray. Here's what he prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Regular, normal, average Elijah has figured out that prayer is the trigger to the supernatural power of God. This is the strategy. Prayer makes a difference. It changes outcomes. It's powerful and effective. Normal Elijah is praying for massive things, and God is just simply saying yes to them. And so as we go all the way back to where we started, James is saying, listen, at this point in my life, brother of Jesus, I'm convinced that if you just prayed, you got to understand in high motivation and in low motivation, what can drive you is the outcome can actually be changed because prayer is powerful and effective. And he says, take Elijah, for example. He's just a human being. And yet God has done all of this through one strategy, step forward and pray. He will do supernatural things. All we gotta do is step forward and pray. Now, I, I ideally would like to go to a different passage, but for the sake of time and for the sake of you flipping even beyond what I think you want to flip, uh, Joshua 10 is, I think, one of the most impressive stories, even as it relates to prayer, where a man named Joshua prays and ask God to stop the sun, and God says yes to that. Like, you can leave here and read the story. Joshua says, God, would you just stop the sun, stop this, like, day calendar for a full 24-hour period, and God says yes to that. And in fact, here's what Joshua 10, 13, and 14 says. It says, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Again, here's the point. Prayer is powerful and effective. Take human being Elijah. Take human being Joshua. Accessing the supernatural power of God through one strategy, just stepping forward and praying and asking major things of. I, I wasn't a guy who excelled all that well in science, but I do know for the sun to stop for a 24-hour period, I'm pretty sure that means that the spinning earth doesn't do that anymore. I don't even know what the implications of the planets in the orbits, like, I don't know. All I know is Joshua had the audacity to act, ask the all-powerful God to stop the sun for a full day, and he's just a human being, and yet God said yes to that. Does it not seem crazy to you that whoever you are, whatever your story is, however you walk in here, what's true of you is the same thing that was true of Elijah and Joshua. You're just a human being. 
And yet you're a human being that has the trigger to the supernatural power of God, and it's just prayer. You have access to the same power that Elijah did. You have the same father that Elijah did. You can utilize prayer in the same way that Elijah did. You can have the outcomes altered in the same way that Elijah did. Now, we've talked about prayer for seven weeks. Jesus has given us vision into the who of prayer, into the types of things that populate a healthy prayer life, but all of that falls short if we don't actually pray. It it all becomes worthless if we aren't people that actually just lean into it and pray. And so his brother James adds his voice into the conversation to not even talk about the who, to not even talk about the what, but to just say, listen, motivation's gonna be high some days and it's gonna be low other days. But there can be a drive underneath that that leads us to prayer and it's just that it's powerful and effective. Take Elijah, for example. He's just a human being like you and me, and that he accessed the supernatural power of God simply through prayer, simply through prayer. And what's interesting about prayer, I think it's crazy about prayer, is that you don't even have to be here right now and have the drive to pray. The crazy thing about prayer is that you can even ask God to give you the drive that would allow you to ask him for things. You can actually just say, I don't even want to pray. I don't even have a drive to pray. I think I'm not going to pray, but I can actually be here right now and ask God to supernaturally move in my heart to make me a prayerful person because I believe it's powerful and effective. I can ask God that he would give me the strength to be a person of prayer. I can ask God to help me believe that prayer makes a difference and changes things. I can ask him to help me believe that it's powerful and it's effective. I can ask him to help me believe that I have the same access that Elijah did that have the same access that Joshua did, and I can have the same results. Rain-stopping, rain-bringing, fire-sending, sun-stopping prayers have been answered by God, and they've just been prayed by normal, average human beings like you and me. The question for us as we wrap up this series, is this all gonna be worth it or worthless? Are we actually going to lean into it? Are we going to be driven by becoming prayerful people, by being a prayerful church? My worst fear in all of this is we'd have great information on prayer and it would lead to no amounts of praying. I don't care what we know about prayer at this point if it doesn't actually lead us to to, to the trigger of the supernatural power of God. This is the strategy. This has always been the strategy. This will always be the strategy. And so I want to close us in prayer. I, I want to ask some like sun-stopping, rain-stopping prayer. I want to ask some big things of God as we leave here for the calendar year as we come to a close. We've talked a lot about prayer, and it's kind of been intentional that we're coming to a close at the end of the year, trying to make some decisions about who we want to be and what we want to be true of the next year. Let me, let me pray and ask God to do significant things. God, I I am clearly just a human being, but I know that normal average human beings have asked you to stop the sun and you've said yes to it. Normal average human beings have asked you to, to stop the rain and you've said yes to it. They've asked you to bring the rain and you've said yes to it. 
At times, God, human beings have asked you to change lives. They've asked you to save people. They've asked you to heal. They've asked you to do unending supernatural things, and it's just human beings asking, and yet you've said yes to that. And so I'm asking as a human being for you to say yes to me asking you to make me a prayerful person. Give me a drive that when motivation's high and when it's low, to just actually be somebody who looks at the Lord's prayer occasionally, who's driven by it, who populates my prayers by the types of things Jesus has taught me to. God, I'm just a human being and I'm asking you to do something in our city, to do something in our church. Make us prayerful people. Drive us there. I'm just a human being and I'm asking you to turn this city upside down. I'm asking you to turn Ohio State upside down. I'm asking you to make the name of Jesus and the story of Jesus so delicious to the ears, to the taste buds of people that it would be so life-altering that they would hear it and want to be changed by it. I'm just a human being and I'm asking you to do significant things. God, lead us into the new year to be who you want us to be, to be driven by the right things, to not be handcuffed by motivation, but to be the types of people that you want us to be. We need your power. We need your strength. We're just human beings, and that's what we're asking. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.